It's great to see all of you. Thanks for being here on this beautiful day outside. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, great to see you as well. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Nan. Uh, thanks for jumping on the live stream here. You know, for the last uh, two weeks, we've been talking about conflict uh, here at Coastline. We've been in the book of Acts. We've been slowly kind of preaching our way through it. We are kind of in the home stretch of it. But last week, we were looking at how the Jerusalem Council and how conflict can at times unite us in a way that nothing else really can. There's this moment in the Jerusalem Council where although they think very differently about what is the right way that the church should move forward, they allow themselves to be ideologically different, ideologically opponents, but never enemies. They allow themselves to disagree, but never in a sense to demonize the other side. And so they went to the scripture they sought the Holy Spirit, and what ends up happening is that God ends up bringing about a new era for the church where the Gentiles are invited in, but they don't have to become Torah-observant Jews. And it's this massive, new, revolutionary moment for the church. And in a sense, the conflict is what makes the church better. That without that conflict, without that struggle, they never would have gotten to the deepest places in their relationship with God and understood exactly what he wanted for them to do. And one of the ideas that was present in the sermon last week was just that idea that oftentimes that the deepest things that we learn about ourselves or the deepest things that we learn about those that we love or the deepest things that we learn about God, they only come out of struggle. They only come out of conflict. They only come out of tension and facing the really hard things oftentimes that we don't want to face on any other day. Today, what we're going to see is that there's another kind of conflict that can happen, though, in relationships and in churches, and it's a sort of conflict that can actually divide us deeply and hurt us also in ways that only church hurt can, or only the ways that hurt from other Christians can. And sadly, this is far more familiar to us uh, we are far more familiar with the kind of conflict that divides and scatters and tears apart than the sort of conflict that actually unites us. Where we're going to be at in the text tonight is that Paul and Barnabas are preparing for the second missionary journey. They've done one large missionary journey that went exceedingly well. But now as they prepare for the second missionary journey, instead of coming together, there's a conflict that happens that blows them apart. And really, as we study the text tonight, what I think you're going to see is that the church and the ministry of the gospel— and in fact, Paul and Barnabas, none of them are actually ever the same due to the conflict. It is that wounding and that painful and that is, it's that difficult. Here's the thing that I think is really interesting. I think most of the time when we preach this passage about the division and the split of Paul and Barnabas, we spin it really positive. Like there's this great silver lining that is so wonderful that we never actually deal with the pain of it all. I think we get that wrong. In fact, as I've preached this in the past, I don't think I've preached it well because I think the division here isn't something to find the silver lining in. It's to deal with the reality of it, the pain of it, and then to look and see how God, in fact, redeems it by his action, not by theirs at all. What I hope you can see here in the passage is that although conflict is ultimately inevitable— in every relationship that you have, in cities and communities and churches and marriages with your kids, conflict is inevitable, but division isn't. 
Division is something that we get to choose. So if you have your Bibles, we have a short passage tonight. Would you stand with me? We're going to be in Acts 15, verse 36, and we're going to go through verse 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, who is also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and he left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, Lord, it's one thing to kind of choose to preach Acts and to choose to preach through uh, passages and to slot the sermons kind of into weeks, but it's another thing to kind of get here and actually have to do it. And, uh, and you know, Lord, I think for a lot of us in this room, uh, this, this passage is, is personal in a way. I know it is for me. Uh, but we've experienced division, we've experienced pain, we've experienced separation, and so, Lord, uh, we can't help but hear the passage through uh, some of our own junk. And you know that. But God, we want to ask that you would kind of both speak through that, but also above and beyond it. That God, you would be causing your word to be alive. And that God, you would not only be ministering, but God, you'd be healing. And Lord, yes, of course, challenging us in terms of what you'd have for us, in terms of moving through some of the pain, facing it, bringing it to you, but moving through it. So Lord, walk with us today. Lord, even if you have to carry us through it, even if you have to drag us through it, Lord, today, would you do your work and bring us to a place of healing and wholeness in you by the power of your spirit through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So there's a small verse in Acts 13 that is actually very important for us to understand actually the passage for us today. Uh, in verse 13, this is Acts 13, verse 13, it says this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So if you want to understand where that passage is, again, this is on the first missionary journey. This is right after the passage where they run into the sorcerer, whose name is Bar-Jesus, who's also called Alimus. We did a sermon talking about Jesus is greater than dark powers, dark forces. If you remember that sermon, this story that kind of takes place right here, it happens immediately after. So what we know is that they go to Cyprus. They have this encounter with the sorcerer there. And once that is over, a guy named John Mark who had been with them, he leaves. It is a tiny part of the story, and we read it really quickly. And it doesn't seem to do much to the overall narrative of what's happening. But although it's not a big deal in Acts 13, it becomes a huge deal in Acts 15. The reason why is they want to do a second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them again even though he left the first time. Now, there might be a reason for that. We know that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. 
So part of that might be because there's some family loyalty and he wants to bring his cousin along as well. And when we simply look at the story, it doesn't seem like a big deal that John Mark left. Uh, John Mark was likely young, uh, traveling on the road into Gentile lands. He had, was probably something he'd never done before. We know that John Mark had lived in Jerusalem. It could have been harder on the road. He, he could have become ill or sick. He could have found that it simply was not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to be a missionary. But there's something in the text that's interesting, because it, when it says that he left them, it uses the word apostanto in Greek, which is the same word for apostasy, which means to leave the faith. So there's something that happens with John Mark that when he quits this missions trip, part of them is maybe on some level having a crisis of faith. There's some sort of doubt that is there. There's some sort of faith crisis that he has that causes him not to be able to continue on the trip. And whatever that issue might be, what we know is that Paul looks at John Mark leaving as apostasy, that he has betrayed them and betrayed the faith. And so for John Mark, him continuing to go on the journey is something that he just simply cannot support and to include John Mark on the mission trip brings this level of conflict to Paul and Barnabas that they've never experienced in their relationship so far. And it's going to affect them profoundly and affect the churches as they move forward. What I, I enjoy about this story is that it shows Paul and Barnabas as real-life human beings with real human emotions and at times, real human conflict. Sometimes we look at the people in the Bible and we imagine that they are different than us or somehow they're all saints or on this totally different level. But then we see these passages and realize, no, they, they could have been any one of us here in this room, both with the incredible good that God does in and through them and also moments of real failure and struggle. What's interesting is that when you look at this issue between, about John Mark, both Barnabas and Paul are, are acting just like they always have been so far in the story. Remember, Barnabas actually is named Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname that they have for him. Barnabas is bar in Hebrew, which means son of, and Abbas means encouragement. It's a nickname for him. He is the son of encouragement. That is what Barnabas does best. He is an encourager. He is somebody who believes in people. He is a champion of others. He is somebody who's constantly developing and building other people up. Barnabas sees what is hidden beneath the surface, and he nurtures it. And it's not simply that he believes that there's untapped potential in John Mark. It's, it's actually bigger than that. Barnabas believes that God wants to do something in John Mark's life to tap into that potential. It's not just that he has talent. It's that he wants God to do something in the life of John Mark. And so he wants to bring him into situations that are, yes, a little bit more than he can handle. And yes, a little bit outside of his comfort zone so John Mark can grow. Uh, there's a saying that you see on a million different Christian memes, which is God draws with broken crayons, you and I being the broken crayons. Nobody understood that better than Barnabas. Barnabas had an eye for every person and their mistakes and their potential and saw what God wanted to do with it, and he always wanted to be a part of developing that. 
That's partly how he became a friend and a ministry partner with Paul. Remember, Paul had been known as the name Saul. He had been a Pharisee who had been persecuting the church, but then he had gotten saved. And when he got saved by Jesus, his whole life turned around, and he begins preaching the gospel in the same cities that he once tried to persecute the Christians. And Barnabas sees this man. And he sees his passion for the Lord. And because he's a developer, Barnabas thinks, i got to do something with this guy. Because there is Paul after fasting for three days, after having been blind for three days, after having murdered Christians, he's now preaching, and everybody's terrified of him. But it's Barnabas who takes Paul, and he brings him to the disciples and creates an interaction and an introduction that never would have happened otherwise. That's just who Barnabas is. He sees Paul and he believes in him. And it's when the church in Antioch is struggling to really kind of build a foundation that it's Barnabas who goes and finds Paul and brings him and launches into ministry there, preaching with him, and eventually goes out on this first missionary trip. Barnabas is somebody who sees and believes and he wants to do for John Mark what he has once done for Paul. He wants to take the unfinished rough edges and all the failures, and he wants to help him grow in Christ. Uh, Barnabas believes there's more for God to do in John Mark. So Barnabas, when he wants to include John Mark in, he's simply acting like he always has been. And Paul, Paul is also acting in a way that is consistent with who he has always been. Paul had been a Pharisee of Pharisees, the most rigid observers of the Old Testament law, zealous in his love for the Lord. And when he was saved, that zeal for the Lord did not go away. It simply became redirected. Where once that zeal caused him to persecute the church, now that same zeal caused him to need to build the church. And he's preaching the gospel again and again. And he's willing to suffer for the gospel. There's this story that we skipped in the preaching of Acts where Paul preaches the gospel in a city called Lystra. While he's in Lystra, they reject the gospel and they drag him outside and they stone him. The thing is, Paul doesn't die. He manages to live through the stoning, and when the people leave, Paul gets up and walks back into Lystra. If you want to understand who he is, he's the sort of man who walks back into the city that just stoned him because of the gospel. Paul was willing to pay for the gospel. He never gave up. He was always willing to fight. He knew that the cross was all of their fate in Jesus. And so since he knew that ministry was dangerous, he expected those who did ministry with him to have the same level of commitment that he did. And if you could not commit, well then go to church, but don't start planting churches. He demanded a lot from himself, and he demanded a lot for everybody who did ministry with him. And so in a sense, you have Paul critical of John Mark because John Mark is not him. He doesn't have the same level of commitment. And Barnabas wants to bring him because Barnabas wants to develop John Mark. And so what you see here is the conflict is about John Mark, but more than that, it's about values. It's about the gospel, and it's about what is most important. For Barnabas, they preach a gospel of reconciliation, how then can they not be reconciled to John Mark? How on earth could they not bring them with him? And for Paul, he must have thought of Luke 9, 26, where he said, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. 
for Paul, we're not bringing this guy because he has failed us once. It looks like they're fighting about John Mark, but really, they're fighting about ministry. And it probably did not happen just in one day. They have been doing ministry now for over a decade. Chances are, this disagreement about ministry has been slowly brewing for over 10 years. John Mark probably pricks an infection that existed inside of the relationship and now the infection is coming to the surface and there's nothing they can do really about it. This happens also to us in our everyday relationships. Oftentimes, what we think we are fighting about, you and I, you and your spouse, you and your roommate, you and your kids, what you think you're fighting about isn't always what you are fighting about. There's other things underneath the surface and in the past that have been long ignored but have begun to fester. And so what you're fighting about is really connected to those things, but it's not actually those things. There is a significant pain that I think that you and I carry about what does happen and also about what does not happen in our relationships. I have found that through 20-something years of pastoral counseling right now, most of the time what people come in to talk to me about isn't really what they need to talk about. People will come in and want to talk about money. But really the subtext behind the conversation about money is control. Who gets to decide what gets spent in the family? Not what gets spent, but who gets to decide. And oftentimes beyond that discussion of who gets to decide is a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of struggle about how money was handled back in their families, and about who made the decision back in their families that's come into this relation with them today. Oftentimes when I'm doing counseling with a couple who are dating or who are in marriage, there's this sort of issue that they're dealing with, but most of the time, if you can get them to take a step back, what they're really reacting to is something that an old lover or an old boyfriend or girlfriend or an ex-husband did that they're afraid of ever happening again. And so they're reacting to something from the past, but it's kind of there in the present. Uh, in parenting conversations, People's idea about what a good parent looks like is oftentimes a reaction against the bad parenting that happened from the way that they grew up. You see, we enter into these conflicts, but what we don't know is that we almost drag like the ghosts of other people into it with us. And they're, they're a part of the conversation, except they're never acknowledged, never seen, never recognized. But really, the conversation is about what happened back there that is unresolved and unhealed, and it's not about this thing today. It's the pain it's unseen and unsaid that's shaping the conflict that we're in right now. You know, there's something that I noticed in some of the political conversations that have happened over the past two years, and it's something that caught me completely off guard, and it was Democrats and Republicans arguing about forest management, which just felt like the craziest thing to actually talk about, like, who cares about how you manage a forest? And how am I supposed to ever evaluate what good forest management looks like? I don't know. I live by the beach. The church is called Coastline. How am I possibly supposed to engage in this in a meaningful way? But it made more sense to me when I drove up to Lake Tahoe this year. As we're up in Lake Tahoe, this is probably in uh, November. It was definitely November. As we're up in November, we drove through a burned section of Tahoe for about 30 minutes. 
30 minutes of black trees and timber fallen because a fire had hit that was so big it was like a bomb had gone off. And the issue with the forest management was that for too long they had allowed trees to fall on the ground and kind of become kindling everywhere. And since nobody had cleaned the forest, pulled the lumber out, when the fire finally sparked, it just became something that was massively out of control. And friends, I thought that was just this incredible analogy of our lives. When we don't deal with the pain and the junk from back here, it is like we end up being these people with lumber in our hearts that's slowly lying around the ground. And so when a conflict sparks, suddenly it's all these things are not, that have not been dealt with, they have not been healed from, they've never been pulled out and removed, and so when they're there, the conflict reaches a level that it never should have because we never attended to some of the things happening deeper inside of us. It is a subtext to so much of our conflict. The next time you are in a conflict with someone you love or someone you care about, someone who is near to you, ask the question, what are you really fighting about? What is the thing that's really kind of standing behind there that is unacknowledged? What are the disappointments that are from a little bit further past that are shaping what you're doing today? Because chances are what you were fighting about is not what you're really fighting about. It says here in the passage about Paul and Barnabas that they have a sharp disagreement. What's interesting about that word sharp is it's actually the word paroxemos. And I hate to do a lot of Greek in a sermon because you don't know if I'm telling the truth or not. I could be making this all up. But the interesting thing the word about sharp, paroxemos, is that it's actually a medical term. Luke, who's the author of Acts, is a doctor. And so when he uses the word paroxemos, it's actually a medical term for an illness. What he's saying is that the relationship of Paul and Barnabas got an infection. Or you should be thinking about it this way, that there became a fever in their relationship. Or that there became convulsions in their relationship. Or that in this relationship, they began to vomit. All of those things had been stuffed way down deep. They began to bring those things to the surface. And it begins to come outside, and ultimately, in a way that sort of conflicts can, where all of a sudden, once the fever strikes, and once the conflict begins, and what is deep inside, once it comes up, it's really hard to stop it and to put things back together. This great relationship suddenly begins to fall apart. Ultimately, till they split apart. Now again, most of the time when this passage gets preached, the way I've heard it preached is that God in his great sovereign work takes this one missionary team and out of the conflict he creates two. Because Paul and Silas go their way, but then Barnabas and John Mark, they go their way. So out of this conflict, one missionary team becomes two. Praise God for his greatness and goodness. And we preach it that way. I think that is so off base. I think it's off base for a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, there is no indication that Barnabas goes on into further missionary work. It says that Barnabas goes to Cyprus with John Mark, but what Cyprus is is his hometown. He goes home. It says that Paul and Silas are blessed by the apostles and blessed by the church, and they are sent out, but it doesn't say that about Barnabas. There, it seems to be that Barnabas goes home, but Paul and Silas go on into ministry, that whatever happens there, it affects Barnabas so deeply that it looks more likely that he retires 
that he goes on to ministry. There's no indication he's ever back on the mission field. More than that, we know that John Mark will not stay in Cyprus with him because we're going to find him later on back in Jerusalem. There's no indication that they ever go on to do dynamic ministry together. So this great sort of redeeming story, it's not complete because it seems like it affects them deeply and it doesn't ever become two missionary teams. It's just one. The second thing is this. From this moment on, Paul will write in almost every letter to every church to be careful about division. He says to hold on to unity almost at any cost. That it is the most important thing. It seems like the division affects Paul in such a way that he doesn't want any church to ever go through what he just went through with Barnabas. It must have been deeply painful. Both men seem to be deeply marked by it, and they never wanted to do it again. And that is, I think, the risk for all of us, is that if you and I don't do conflict well, what we risk is entering into a conflict that marks us so profoundly that we limp forever because of it. That if we do not deal with our stuff, if we don't clear out the lumber, if we don't heal from the pain and trauma, in the end, when it goes, we may never get over it. Or we might be scarred in a way that's always noticeable and always seen and in a sense can always hurt. And here's the thing. If the conflict was hard on Paul and Barnabas, it must have been even worse for John Mark. There are every indication that John Mark is a good man, that he just wasn't ready. It was all just too much for him. He had failed. He knew he had failed. He had gone home and he had probably been worried about what it had done to the relationship and never actually had seen it. But now he's invited back on this trip. And it's not only that he knew that he failed in the past, now he has to hear Paul tell him, you failed. He has to hear Paul say, you're a failure. Not only that, but he has to hear Paul say, I would rather quit this trip and quit this team than go with you. And then he has to watch Paul and Barnabas fight at such a level that this missionary dream breaks apart. For John Mark, he must have not only felt like a failure, but that he had ruined his life, that he had ruined the church, that he had ruined other relationships and the gospel would never go forward in the way that God had once intended. He is simply left standing amidst the wreckage of his decision. And it must have been incredibly painful. What I love is that the gospel that we believe in, that we preach, it is literally for people with ruined lives. It is for people who are standing amidst the rubble. It is for people who have made huge mistakes and cannot find any way of putting their life together. It is for people who find that there is so much moral debt in their life that they could never outwork the things that they have already done. That is who the gospel is for. And John Mark doesn't know that yet. He knows that in one way, but in the midst of the failure, he cannot see that the gospel is exactly for him. And it's at the bottom and in the midst of his failures and in the midst of his struggle that God is now going to do something profound in his life. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 3. This is in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. 
And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are standing in the wreckage of their lives. Blessed are those who are failures. Blessed are those who have no righteousness of their own, but they hunger and thirst wishing that they could just do a little bit better. Jesus says that those people are blessed. Why? Because it's tough to receive the gospel when you're holding on to so many of your own personal trophies and accomplishments. It's hard to understand your need when you're surrounded by all of your successes. If I have to preach the gospel to those who have never struggled, never had a hard day, always done well, have been fairly righteous, it's hard to help them see their deep commitment to sin and how much they need Jesus. But when you've blown your life up, when you've ruined it, when you littered on fire, when you hear the gospel there, suddenly you realize your need and the beauty of it because your hands are open and you're desperate. John Mark is desperate to hear the good news of the gospel because he now knows that he needs it. And blessed, and what he's truly blessed that is that as he returns back to Jerusalem, there is somebody who knows exactly what it's like to fail there to meet him. And his name is Peter. In a sense, if you think about Peter, he is a first ballot hall of famer for, the, for failures, Everything Peter does, literally every story in the New Testament is a different story about him failing in a different way. He tried to walk on water, and he sank. He tried to confront, confront Jesus, and Jesus called him Satan. He tried to build a tent for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Yahweh himself told him to shut up. He attacked a priest and chopped off his ear. Jesus had to glue it back onto his head with Holy Spirit magic. Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. He literally gave him the cheat code to the test that was coming, and he still denied him. Jesus said that he was going to build his church on Peter, but there's never a moment in the Gospels where it seems like that's a good decision or one where it's likely to happen. Peter fails again and again and again and again, but for all of his failures, Jesus is endlessly patient with him. I think this is fascinating. If Paul, in a sense, had treated John Mark, or let's say this, if Paul had treated Peter to the same standard he treated John Mark, Peter never would have done ministry another day in his life after one of those things. Peter would have been cast off so long ago. But Jesus was patient with Peter where Paul never was with John Mark. And so as John Mark comes back to Jerusalem, limping and wounded and full of mistakes, there is a man there, Peter, who takes him under his wing and slowly puts him back together. We don't know all of the story, but we do know that at some point, Peter befriends him. He mentors him. He encourages him. He takes a chance on John Mark that Paul never would. And in a sense, the mentorship that Peter does for him, it undoes some of the wounds of Paul. It undoes some of the hard things that Paul had said, and it slowly begins to help John Mark believe again. And soon, Peter's life and John Mark's life begin to get entwined in ministry just the same way that Paul and Barnabas' lives did as well. And so what Paul and Barnabas had been to each other, so John Mark and Peter become to each other again. Until one day when Peter is in prison, he writes a letter and we see John Mark's name appear in it. This is from 1 Peter 5.13 says this, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, that's the church in Rome, it's a fancy way to say the Roman church, 
So he says this, the church in Rome, she sends you her, her greetings, and so does my son Mark. So let me say it again. Peter is in prison. Peter is not going to get out of prison. He's going to die in prison. And there, caring for him in his last days is John Mark. And John Mark is so close to him that when, Paul, when Peter tries to think about how do I describe this man to you, he says, this man, he's, he's like my son to me. In the end, when Peter is martyred for his faith, which he will be, John Mark takes his stories and he writes the Gospel of Mark. Now here's what's great. The Gospel of Mark, 90% of its contents are found in Matthew and Luke. And so what people believe is that Mark is the first Gospel that is written. And likely Matthew and Luke had it in front of them as they wrote their own Gospels. And Luke takes those stories and he writes them from a chronological perspective. And Matthew takes those stories and writes it to help people understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish uh, prophecies of the Messiah. But Mark becomes the first Gospel written that shapes the way that we know Jesus to this day. The person that Paul couldn't trust, the person that Paul was afraid would leave them again, is faithful to Peter through prison and even after his death, and we stand in his legacy to this day. Now, Paul might have been right about John Mark in the short term, but he was very wrong about him in the long term. There might have been things concerning about him right in that moment, but largely those concerns don't play out. And friends, that was exactly Barnabas's point. Sure, there are issues, but there's also potential. So let's develop it. And it does become developed by the graciousness of God. When I think about this, I think it should caution all of us about how clearly you and I see conflict. That your perspective in conflict is probably not that clear, nor is it that accurate. Your perspective about what will happen or what could happen, what somebody will do or should do, it comes from a point of view that you, all, that you alone have, but that doesn't mean that you're right. So many times in conflict, we become confident that what we see is reality, that what we see will happen, that what we fear is true. And oftentimes, we just don't have enough information to actually say that. When you and I enter into conflict, every one of us should enter in humble, needing to hear the other side because we understand that we are not inerrant and we are not perfect and there's no way that we see things as clearly as we need to. Friends, if we came into conflict, conflict humbly, instead of from a uh, position as an expert, I think it would change everything about how we go in and how we come out of it. And here's the deal. However hard the conflict was on John Mark, however hard it was on Paul, however hard it was on Barnabas, the person that it was the most difficult for was Jesus Christ. That the person most grieved by this conflict is our Lord and Savior because Jesus sincerely hates this kind of conflict in his church. This is again out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 22. He says this, You've heard it said, Oh, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, they'll be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means like fool, is answerable to the court. But anyone who says, you fool, they're going to be in danger of the fires of hell. See, Jesus came to unite 
broken people together into his family. That is his vision. When you and I tear ourselves apart, we are now living against that vision and against those values. We are now tearing ourselves apart and wounding his heart. Jesus hates the division that happens between Paul and Barnabas. And any sermon that doesn't tell you that Jesus hates the division between Paul and Barnabas or is not being true to the text. Jesus hates it. Matthew 5, 23 goes on. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. I mean, let that be really clear to us. Your reconciliation with your brother or sister, it matters more than your worship. Jesus, don't come in here until you are right relationally. In fact, what he is really saying there, to say it more clearly, is that your reconciliation is the best worship you could show him. Nothing is going to say more about what you really believe than what you do. What you believe is not found in what you say or what you profess or what you will sign onto. It is what you do. And so the best worship that you and I can give is to love those who God loves. It's to be family with those who God has adopted. It deeply matters to Jesus. And here's the really hard news to you and I, all of us, is that although we might do our best to blow things apart, in the end, the heart of Jesus is always to bring us back together into relationship. It doesn't matter how far you blow apart a relationship, Jesus' plan in the end is to bring us all together, and oftentimes it happens right here and now. You see, 12 years after Paul and Barnabas' relationship breaks up, God brings Paul and John Mark back together again. Paul now is in prison for preaching the gospel. He would eventually be set free from it. But while he's in prison, he needs people to provide for his needs. And he mentions that there in the city of Col- well, he's writing to the city of Colossae, he writes that John Mark is present with him. Look at Colossians 4.10. Paul writing, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So 12 years later, after Paul and Barnabas split up, we know that John Mark is there caring for Paul in prison the same way that he once cared for Peter. At some point, in some way, there was a reconciliation between Paul and John Mark because God does not allow us to simply go off unreconciled. God begins to, rec- to redeem and draw them back together. And not only was there connection, there comes deep friendship. This is 17 years later after Paul and Barnabas break up. We find Paul reaching out for John Mark. And this time Paul is in prison again. And this time he will not make it out. He's been beaten. He is physically wounded. He is afraid and he is in pain. This is 2 Timothy 4.12. He says this, only Luke is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. The person who Paul had once said is not going to be a help to me by the end of his life says, I'm about to die, and the one person I need here is John Mark. Friends, that's the hope to us in this, is that God is able to redeem and restore and heal anything and everything. 
And God's able to bring beauty out of the relationship and out of all of the pain of it. And he does this again and again in the Bible. Esau swears that he will kill Jacob if he ever sees him again after stealing his birthright. And a decade later, God brings them together in peace. Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they sell him to slavery in Egypt. And after decades apart, God brings them back together into a healed family. Miriam opposes her brother Moses, and God strikes her with leprosy. And in the end, she's only healed from that leprosy when Moses resolutely prays for her. Jesus shares his own heart with this when he talks about the story about the prodigal son, about bringing back a lost son back to his father. God's heart is always that his people would come to be reconciled and restored in relationship with one another. Our picture of heaven is oftentimes that we will one day get a mansion and we'll be richer than richer than rich and we will live in opulence and luxury and we'll spend eternity with jacuzzis and beautiful views and sunsets in perfect ways. We have this picture where it's all for us. Really, when scripture ends, it says the way that the story ends for you and I is at a table, at a family reunion, at a banquet where there we eat together, and it goes on that way forever. You know, I was out at dinner um, recently, and while I was out at dinner, I ran into somebody who I never wanted to see again. And when I saw him, I panicked, panicked. My blood pressure went to one billion. I looked at Melinda, I was like, we gotta go, 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 we gotta go. Up out of the table, knocking silverware onto the floor, back into the back of the restaurant saying, I need to pay a bill, I need to pay a bill, take a credit card, tip yourself, whatever you choose, I need to go. Out to the car, keys, keys, you know, like hands, just nothing but knuckles, dropping them on the ground, shaking, had to get out of there without being seen, without seeing them again. And I felt like it took me probably about a month to get over it. And just recently, as I was praying to God about that moment, he said, we're not going to do that again. Because the picture of heaven is not where we continually blow apart from each other and dig trenches and justify ourselves and build bigger walls. The picture of heaven is where we come together at a table. We've been called to bring the kingdom of heaven here to this earth as it is in heaven, which means since we're going to spend eternity together one day, let's bring a little bit of eternity into this present moment now. I don't know how I'll do it when I see that person again, but what I know is that God doesn't want me to blow apart any further. It's to somehow, whatever step I can do in that day is to begin the journey of back towards one another in healing. And that's what I want to invite you into as well. I don't know what the pain is in your life, where the wounds are, where the conflict is, where you're experiencing it, but what I want to encourage you to do is that the next time you're in conflict, remain connected in conflict. Meaning instead of blowing apart and running away, instead of fleeing to your corners, instead of running the opposite direction of them, stay connected. Stay in the conversation. Take a break if you need to. Give it a day, give it an hour, give it a week, but come back to it. Don't allow yourself to disconnect from the conflict because I believe that what God wants to do is actually meet you in the middle of it. Remain connected in conflict because that's what the message of the gospel is, isn't it? 
That we are to live and to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. This is Ephesians 4.32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, outcry, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another. Forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you. Conflict is inevitable, but division isn't. We have a choice in this. And more than that, we have the power of God with us. Let me pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, we want to pray that you would do a work healing the broken relationships in our life. With our children, with our friends, with our parents. Lord, we want to pray that you would come in the middle of those things and that, Lord, you would be the bridge. And Lord, oftentimes we know before we can really accept you as the bridge in our relationships, Lord, we know that first you need to heal us. And so God, would you look down deep inside every person and Lord, would you begin to heal the places that are broken, knit back together those broken bones. And Lord, um, although we might always limp, Lord, we don't want to be infected. We don't want to carry that infection with us. So Lord, purge it and heal it by the power of your grace. And Lord, the same grace that you've given to us, would you help us to give it to others? We pray this so that your son might receive glory and so that people might look at the gospel and see that it's beautiful. And Lord, so that we might have a witness to the world and so that your kingdom would come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.